This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Today we have Dr. Neil Polvin. He's a well-known functional medicine specialist in Manhattan. Today we're talking about typically Lyme's disease. Lyme's disease is a very confusing, very complicated medical condition that often is confused with other medical conditions. And unfortunately, it's often undiagnosed and people suffer from chronic pain without the appropriate treatment for a long time. So Dr. Polvin, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. Or first, can you tell us what Lyme's disease is? Uh, Lyme disease, the simple answer is, which is unfortunately nothing with Lyme disease is simple. But Lyme disease basically is an infection from what's called a spirochete that can be, you can get bitten for anything from now. I mean, there's a big debate about how long the bite has, the, the tick or has, or infected organ has to be on there for. It could be anywhere now from, people are saying from an hour to up to over 24 hours is the big debate. Different studies say different things. That can cause a boatload of different symptoms, everything from headache to pericardial swelling around the heart to fatigue to hormonal deficiencies. Symptoms usually start anywhere between two to three weeks to six months to a year afterwards. Um, unfortunately, there's usually some other infections that are, are transmitted in that infection, that in that bite that you received, usually from a tick. And if the sooner that is treated, the better their results are. So my understanding of Lyme's disease, and correct me if I'm wrong, is it's it's a mimicker of, of other things. So people can have these weird symptoms and no two people with Lyme's disease may present exactly the same. True. Like I said, I mean, there's patients, I have, it's kind of, it's either one or the other. I live in Manhattan, New York is one of the big states in the country, New York, Pennsylvania, Connecticut is kind of partly where we're originating in Connecticut, that's where the name comes from. So people are more aware of it here, especially in the summertime. So they're a little more aware, but yeah, it can mimic a lot of different things. I mean, there's patients who come to me and they've seen 13 different doctors and they have a pack of, ha- a pack of papers of, uh, uh, two inches thick. Um, they've been diagnosed with fibromyalgia, headache, rheumatoid arthritis. Um, we've had patients with uh, syncope or passing out to uh, some type of neuro and they've been given every medicine under the sun and they're like, this isn't helping me or they're not getting the answers or they start with the one symptom. The other way it kind of happens, they'll start with one symptom like neuropathy or headache or joint pain and it spreads to more, the joint pain will spread more areas or they'll have fatigue, then they'll get a headache and then they'll get joint pain and they're like, this doesn't make sense and the doctor gets confused and blows them off and then they kind of find, they look for details and then they discover they may have Lyme disease. And I think one of the frustrating things exactly like you said, and I think that's an impo- a really important point, is when people see their doctor and they know that something's wrong with them and they keep going from doctor to doctor and so many healthcare professionals keep telling them, no, you don't have anything or they keep giving them some inappropriate diagnosis. And a lot of patients, I think, will start to think, well, is it me? Why are all these people telling me either I'm fine or giving me some, some diagnosis and then a treatment that never works, but they still have these weird pains or symptoms coming through. So can you go through the, so there's something called a differential diagnosis. So if it's not Lyme's disease, what are some of the things that it could also be that may look like Lyme's disease, but it's not? That's a, that's a two, I can break that down to two different parts, not just to make things easy. Um, If it's not Lyme, it could definitely be things I already mentioned. It could be, if it's a joint pain, it could be anything for rheumatoid arthritis. It could be just osteoarthritis, just degenerative disease, other pain. 
patients who just get fatigue. It could be iron deficiency anemia. It could be fibromyalgia, which has its own complications in terms of diagnosing. It could be other autoimmune issues like lupus. In terms of the neuropathy, it could be anything from back pain, from like a disc issue. Um, it depends on the symptoms. Again, a lot, unfortunately, more and more patients are getting blood pressure, heart, and with what we call syncope or passing out. So then it could, it's kind of, a, they could be a blood pressure issue, it could be a heart issue. Um, so it depends on the symptoms that they're presenting with. And then that's where the differential diagnosis goes. It's, and the thing with Lyme, it's not only a mimicker, but it's always, a lot of times it becomes a combo issue um, as well. Meaning that if you have Lyme, you may have fibromyalgia on top of it. You may have low testosterone on top of it. You may have chronic fatigue on top of it. So it's not only the fact that it mimics a lot of things, but it's not when you do get diagnosed officially, you may not just have Lyme, you may have three other partners. with. So it's kind of complicated on both ends. One getting diagnosed and then be treating. And so when when you have these this huge differential diagnosis, and exactly like you said, people go keep going from doctor to doctor and, and it's hard to find someone that's really knowledgeable about Lyme disease. So can you speak to some of the frustrations that some people will have when they see a traditional infectious disease specialist when they have Lyme? And they've already been diagnosed? And they've been diagnosed. That a lot of doctors still, I mean, I've never seen a disease that gets so debated in terms of if it exists, if it's not treatment when the studies are pretty good out there now that it does exist in terms of not only acute, potentially chronic issues from it. So the main issue they get is A, the diagnosis is all over the place. You can talk to 10 doctors who have been formally trained either traditionally infectious disease, who have done more training in Lyme. And the problem is 10 different doctors can look at their Lyme test and some will say they will have it and some say they won't. So that's the first concern that they're getting even if answer they have or they don't. And then the frustration beyond that is some doctors will tell them that it's an acute illness, it's self-treating, not self-treating, but it'll with the antibiotics will be done in anywhere up to three months. And that's it. You have no further symptoms. And then the more and more studies are coming out now that there are chronic symptoms that you could have symptoms if it's not treated appropriately for the rest of your life. So that's the main two debate. And then, like I said, the third problem is that, again, it can overlap. It can a mimic and B, overlap other conditions that most traditional, most doctors don't know to look for the things that can overlap. So there are two, from my understanding, two Lyme disease associations. There's the American Lyme Disease Association and then the International Lyme Disease Association. And they have very different philosophies on Lyme disease. There's the IDSA and the ILADS are the kind of the two big ones. IDSA is very traditional. They don't really believe in a chronic Lyme disease. They are very traditional. They don't believe in any holistic or any other alternative type treatments for it. They are finally changed some of their recommendations end of last year, 2018, but they are still very stubborn in terms of admitting a lot of things that have been proven scientifically in major universities like Columbia and Johns Hopkins. And then ILADS believed in chronic Lyme for years and years and years. They believe in combining traditional and alternative treatments for it. And unfortunately, there is between doctors among both communities, a lot of fighting in terms of everything from government policy to I see them on Twitter every day, doctors trying to counteract each other. So unfortunately, it's affecting the patients when it's probably one of the biggest ones I see where there's such a huge disparity in terms of what it is and the appropriate treatment for it. You have a cold, you know how to get treated. You have this, you know how to get treated. This is like, it puts the patient in no man's land, which is not a patient's fault, which is a shame. And this is why I appreciate you being on this podcast to really, and I've said this on other interviews I've done, that it's important to know who you're seeing. And at the end of the day, if you're seeing 
a physician with a reasonable amount of time, if you're not getting better, I think it's totally appropriate to discuss that and say, I want a second opinion from someone else. And you may have to find someone else who you're comfortable with that can treat you. So the other issue with Lyme's disease is it also has a lot of co-infections, meaning if one of the ticks or bugs that bite you, you can also get other bugs or ticks or other bugs or bacteria or infections with it. Can you discuss that? Yes. I'm going to try to keep it short and try to simplify it a little bit because you're complicated. A lot of big words, a lot of big fortunate infections never have simple names like Bob. So in terms of the co-infections, I mean, there's a core four or five that we always look for. And then another 20 that you could technically look for depending on symptomatology and how aggressive your doctor is. I mean, the main core four or five is something called Babesia. That's something that you usually look for. There's different, one called Microti, one called the Duncan Eye. Those are the two that we look for. Another one we look for is something called Anaplasma. Another one is Ehrlichosis. Another one we look for is Rickettsia. The most common one that people may have heard of is Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, but there's other forms that we typically look for. And then the other one that we always look for now is something called Mycoplasma Pneumonia, which people may know as walking pneumonia. That can now be, has been shown to be transmitted through the tip. So those are kind of the big core ones that we always look for. And most tests usually have is the core panel, I guess. And then there's other ones that have come out now, like Pelosan virus. And there's other ones. One I can't pronounce is the one, unfortunately, where people now are developing an incident allergy to meat. Um, has been formed, been found in the tick. I can't pronounce. I'm not even going to try to butcher it. And there's other ones that are now finding things like mono, the EBV virus, the monovirus has now been shown to be transmitted. And there's Aurelia miramotoi, which is one that you can get chronic, but it looks like malaria more. So there's tons of different co-infections you can look for. And that's why, again, it makes it very hard to treat because you could have one infection, you could have five infections. And unfortunately, the treatments are different. Some require more parasite treatment versus antibiotic treatment. Some of them actually are now treated with Dapsone, which is a medicine that was used initially for leprosy. So unfortunately, unless you know what you're dealing with, you can't get treated appropriately. And it's interesting that you said that there was one bug that would make you allergic to meat. Again, I'm blanking the last part of the name, so I'm not... I mean, no, I don't need the name, but it's just interesting that a bug would do that. They don't know why. It came from Asia, and they knew about it, and then they didn't even know it was had been transferred over here. And it was big, at least on the East Coast in the summertime, where people were just going to the hospital and having these severe anaphylactic reactions to meat. And they didn't know why, and they kind of worked backwards. And at least on the East Coast, it's pretty big. I don't know in the Midwest if it's out there. I can't. That I'm not familiar with that specific symptom in the Midwest. So with in order to diagnose these things, so again, if someone has Lyme, I'm going to emphasize this again because I think it's such an important point. As a patient, you may be referred to an infectious disease specialist and you will get a totally different converse. It'll be a totally different conversation and a totally separate treatment protocol than if you see someone like Dr. Paulvin, who is a Lyme specialist, like night and day different. Let me kind of, I want to be fair. I mean, there are some doctors who are hybrids of that. I don't want to scare people who are listening to your podcast and say, every traditional infectious disease doctor doesn't kind of combine both thought philosophies. Some do, some don't. And that's why I always ask my patients, A, what the thought process is. There's some patients that don't only believe in traditional. And you should also, like you mentioned, know what you're dealing with. If the doctor's not traditional, I don't believe in chronic Lyme disease. And that's what your mindset is, and that's fine. But know what your doctor thought process is and what treatment plans and what lab work they order before you even get started. Because it may be not a good relationship for either one of you. But there are there is a mix of doctors who do both. And there's doctors who are in one camp or the other. So you need to know what you're dealing with. For me, it is interesting when people say, I don't believe in chronic Lyme or I don't believe in other things in medicine. But if you have a patient is sitting in front of you and this person's saying, I was bitten by a tick, I have the classic symptoms and I, I've had this now for over a year and I'm getting all these like weird heart problems or skin aches or joint aches or whatever. Then the physician sitting in front of them says, well, I don't believe you. I don't know what you have, but I don't believe you. Well, that's not really acceptable because you don't have to believe it. It's there. It is what it is. Yeah, I agree completely. So as far as the, the diagnosis, can you comment on how this is diagnosed and some of the challenges in diagnosing Lyme 
symptoms or the co-infection. Okay. And for the rest of the conversation, I'm just going to make it easier for everybody listening that there is going to be kind of the two pathways, like the traditional approach and the more broad approach. And then I'll kind of just try to separate everything that way without repeating that statement again. No matter what, everybody will get the traditional Lyme, what we call an ELISA, which is the initial test. Um, and then most doctors will do what's called a Western blot. And that unfortunately has been found to be effective depending which data you want to look at anywhere between 30 to 50% of patients who have Lyme disease. And this is at least 50% of the cases of Lyme. That's been shown. There's states like Maryland who actually, when you go to get your Lyme test done, have you sign a form saying that you, you understand this test is not great, but we're going to do it anyway, which is kind of other things makes no sense, but that's the way the Lyme thing works. So that's usually the starting point. So I'm going to jump in right there. So just because you went through it really quickly. So what you're saying is that these tests have a high false positive rate, meaning you may have Lyme disease and the test will tell you you don't because the test is not a perfect test. Yeah, a lot of times we'll get patients will get a false negative saying that they don't have Lyme disease, even though that if we do the more complicated test, they do. So you can test for Lyme's, but you may have Lyme's and the test will say that you don't have Lyme. But then there are all these other bugs that you may have that, do you want to comment on that? It's kind of the same problem, unfortunately, that some of the traditional tests that you go to LabCorp request for, you may get a false negative if you do it that way. A lot of those tests are more accurate than the Lyme test is. But your doctor, whoever you're seeing, can order the specific test for all the co-infections. They're all, almost all of them are done through LabCorp request. Um, you could just ask for, I mean, the six or seven ones that I mentioned, Babesia, Anaplasma, Ehrlichosis, Mycoplasma, Pneumonia, EBV. Your doctor can very easily order them for you through traditional lab initially. If they come back positive, then it's still positive. I mean, that's the good news. If it comes back positive on a regular test, then it's a pretty definitive diagnosis. Um, if it comes back negative, you still may have it. Um, you may just need a more higher specificity test, a test that is just more accurate in diagnosis of those specific co-infections. So back in the day, doctors would sit down with their patients and spend a long time talking to them. But in modern medicine, that's that's not really, sometimes not the case. But if, say that you sit down with someone and you really talk to them and based on the history of their disease and the symptoms they have, and you are convinced that they have Lyme disease, even though the test is negative, what would be your treatment protocol? In actuality, it's a very complicated process because a lot of times they have multiple symptoms and I'm doing a lot more lab tests, so I get a lot more answers. Mm -hmm. But a traditional Lyme patient, from my perspective, is usually going to end up on, if that's all they come back positive for, is one to two antibiotics at one time. Because usually our goal is to treat treat different mechanisms that the cell, that the infection will hit. One is called extracellularly. One is sometimes that the tick will actually go inside the cell. So if you don't, and the antibiotics work differently, and I'm not going to, that's a whole nother hour lecture by itself. So um, a lot of times we'll put on one or two different antibiotics, and then we will usually add certain, some alternative treatments as well. The main thing, which is kind of broaching a little bit into traditional medicine is something called biofilms. Um, the way we explain a biofilm to a patient is it's kind of like a goo-like or a cyst-like covering that protects the bacteria from being either A, found and B, treated effectively. So you need something to literally bust, we call them biofilm busters that actually break that open so that the, either the antibiotic or the herbal supplement for patients I have that are into alternative medicine can actually go in there and, and kill the infection. That's usually the starting point. And then we will treat any symptoms, we try to delve into any other symptoms they may have, things like fatigue or muscle aches. There's tons of different things we can treat the symptoms with to make them comfortable until the antibiotic works. So you, you, so you get, there are antibiotics that, and that I, I agree, that's a whole other, it's a very long topic. So there are antibiotics that you offer. What are some of the alternative medication or supplements that you would offer for someone with Lyme's and or co-infection? Um, there's a couple of different things that we, the more common ones, I like guess the biofilm busters and most common ones are stevia actually, which people use to use as a natural sweetener. Um, something called monolaurin, which we use for uh, hormonal issues as well, has been shown to work. Um, there's a, c- a couple companies that make specific ones that have uh, just initial names like 
that really aren't going to mean much to people called BFM1 or BCF1 by a company called Beyond Balance, which have shown great. A lot of Lyme doctors use them. Those are the most common ones. And something called Baluk, B-O-L-U-O-K-E, that also work really well to do that. I mean, also we use things called artemisinin, garlic, astragalus. I mean, there's a couple traditional protocols that people in the Lyme community use, one called Buner, one called Cowden Protocol, um, that are it, depending on which infections show up, it's four or five that you take in a certain period of time. And X studies are now showing those work as well. But again, that's a whole separate lecture to do a deep dive into. And you also do hormone replacement, correct? If these, if it's indicated. I do. I don't do it initially just because people, Any again, something that we probably very important is that when you're treating any type of tick infection, unfortunately, most patients get what's called a Herx reaction or Herxheimer reaction, which means that the body has suppressed the, the infection to kind of help protect the body. And then the, the antibiotic or the supplement acts like a magnet and pulls it out. So patients for anywhere between three days to a week will get like, can get in there from nausea and vomiting, like a flu-like symptom. So they feel bad enough as it is when you're treating them initially. And I warn my patients if they're on antibiotics or supplements. So I don't do that initially, but if a lot of them have now been found to have either, if the female have estrogen deficiencies, men will have testosterone deficiencies. That's something that I will check initially, as I mentioned. And then if the symptoms are still there after about six weeks to two months, I'll recheck them again. And then I'll add it on definitely if they're having a combination of symptoms and the labs bear it out. And um, any thoughts on specific diet modifications that you might recommend for Lyme? The most common ones that we, I use are, well, actually there's three now. I use what we call an autoimmune paleo diet, which is something where you just, people may know there's almost an elimination diet where you avoid dairy and sugar and sometimes eggs, which will help calm down the immune system. Um, I've started some patients on the keto diet, which is starting to have some good studies in terms of decreasing inflammation. And then the new diet that's out is something called Prolon, which is a fasting mimicking diet. Um, a lot of people have now, fasting's gone from being kind of alternative thing to now, at least by me, everybody's doing it and talking about it it's on everybody's social media account. A lot of people can't fast. They just don't like doing it. So there's a diet called Prolon developed by a doctor from Stanford where you get the benefits of fasting. You do it for five days. It stimulates the effects of fasting, but you actually get to eat bars and soup and broth. And my patients who've been really tough to treat, who have a lot of inflammation, or we call it brain fog, um, or even joint complaints have been on that diet and they've noticed some mild or some incredible, some have achieved like dramatic success. And what's, kind of, what's the name of that diet again? Prolon, P-R-O-L-O-N. Okay. So it's kind of a hybrid between ketogenic and intermittent fasting. Yeah. Pretty Great. Um, and can you, can you talk about some of the, your success stories that you've seen? So really quickly, like I saw, I, I had a patient who had a, like a granddaughter and she was out like playing one summer and then she got this tick bite and then she got some antibiotics. But over the course of the year, she developed all these behavioral issues and just wasn't doing well in school and they thought she had some sort of psychological thing going on. Then she got um, she saw a Lyme specialist. Lyme specialist treated this little girl and then all her behavioral issues and what they thought were psychological issues went away because it was really just this chronic Lyme issue. I've also seen people who have literally been bed bound because of just joint pain and brain fog and then they got treated by the appropriate specialist and then they, they were up like about walking around and they got their lives better. So I've seen dramatic improvement. But if you want to comment, obviously being HIPAA compliant, just some of the successes that you've seen. You kind of stole my thunder there as you kind of copied to the, the ones that was oh doing. sure well sorry about that the first one is yes yeah, so i have a, i have a child i think he was 11 who was a normal no it was normal to about seven or eight um and then like like the snap of a finger had developed behavioral issues with 
bad in school, was seeing every psychological therapist was on like three meds already for ADD and OCD and all these really bad psychological and it really just changed his life. He was doing bad in school. His mom mentioned in fleeting, oh, by the way, he had a tick bite back in around the same time. But when I asked her and then I did some lab work and then he came back positive for that. He also was diagnosed with something called pandas, which is again, another, which can be an offshoot of the Lyme issue. Again, a whole nother deep dive. We treated them. I treated- Wait, what is panda? I'm I'm sorry. I'm just really curious. What's panda? Panda is, oh, now you're asking, I forgot the acronym actually means. It's an auto, it could be from a couple different infections. It can be from either um, a mycoplasma or a strep infection as a kid, or it's now been found that it could be from, which is what pans is, or pandas, which is from a Lyme or a tick bite, Mm -hmm. where the main things is, especially in kids, I think up to 13 now the criteria says, where they will develop potentially neurological issues. They will develop OCD. They will be through bedwetting again. They become very their school performance their writing dramatically changes and like and it's almost when parents describe like a like a light switch where the behavior just dramatically switches that quickly unfortunately i kind of when i see my patients i always will do the testing for that and unfortunately a lot of them come back positive so that's something that always kind of goes part and parcel with my kids especially who have lyme disease but it must be hard though because if especially like we discussed before if it if it has a if there's a high false negative rate meaning someone has the disease and the tests are just going to be negative then what do you really do um Actually, that's a little easier because the, the the lab tests are actually pretty good. There's a special test by by two companies that highlight it specifically, and if the tests come out positive, it's pretty much they have it. So it's a little bit easier to diagnose. Actually, like I said, the symptomatology is pretty much textbook. Like I said, when if a normal child develops OCD or has other type of behavioral issues, it's usually a progression. It's not like my kid was normal last week and now he's I can't even get him to stay in bed. He's leaving school and he's ready to get ready to kicked out of school. It doesn't really happen. So that part usually it actually makes that part easier. Sure. Uh, so that, and then again, the point we, I treated him for that. I did a little bit of that treatment as well. Um, he had to see a, spe- a pediatric neurologist who's specialized in PANS. He did, he got a treatment called IVIG on top of that. And within six months, his, he was off all his psych meds. He was back to performing normal in school. And the mom will love me forever just because, I mean, again, when you give a kid back his life, you're good, you're good as gold in their eyes. Um, and the other one, I had an adult, had chronic joint pain, headaches, brain fog for three or four years. The doctor only put her on, even for a regular doctor, I'd put her a minimal amount of antibiotic. I treated her for the co-infection, the antibiotic. Actually, still a pretty mild treatment dose and treatment protocol. And I treated some of the hormonal issues on top of it afterwards. And within six months, she was had regained most of her life. She was pretty much missing work, um, was ready to go on disability. And then within that time period, she was ready to go back to work. She was going back to the gym. Because she's about to go back to the gym, she lost the weight, which got rid of some of her other symptoms. So, I mean, it's, you have to look for it. I mean, unfortunately, unfortunately, a lot of patients between Facebook and social media groups will sometimes tell you, I think that's what I have. And they'll come back with these papers from Google. And unfortunately, Fortunately, they sometimes know more than the doctors do, which is a shame and also good because they're being more aggressive and in their care. And, and social media is a funny thing because some the flip side is also true where people will come in and say they have this weird, bizarre disease that, that probably they don't have. Or they may say, I want this treatment that they read about on the internet that may be actually a very harmful treatment. So I think that's why it's probably a good idea that people do research on the internet, but also trust that people, um, the, the doctor they're seeing knows what they're talking about. But on the flip side, there's that balance of if you're not getting better, then clearly whatever you're doing is not helping. So maybe look for a different specialist. I totally agree with that. I mean, you got to know what you're looking at both from the internet perspective. And yeah, if you, I always tell my page that if you're not getting better and, and, and you don't have a diagnosis within three or four visits, at least a maximum of up to two months, then you definitely need to find, get a second opinion and you shouldn't be plateauing and not have any answer. I really like that point of, I think it's very appropriate to get second opinions, um, especially as a patient.
patient. I get second opinions all the time because I know what I know, but I don't know every specialty. So if you go in and you see your your doctor or your healthcare professional and they say, this is what you have. I mean, especially if it's something vague and, and it's not very specific. If it's something vague and they say, this is what you have and they don't really have something called a differential diagnosis, meaning it could be, it's likely this, but there are all these other things that may be, then they're going to have a larger error rate versus having a very, like you said, a very large list of things that possibly could be and then systematically going through and figuring out what you have. No, yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, I mean, very few things are simple. I mean, obviously you come back for a flu test and you get the, and, and your flu test is positive, 99% you have the flu. But then most medical issues aren't that cut and dry, unfortunately. So yeah, your doctor should definitely say, this is what we're going through first. It may be A or B, but, and, but we'll, this is the most likely based on your labs and your symptoms. This, and this is how we're going to proceed. And that's always what I tell my patients. And if we have a chronic issue that there's always a continuum of we're starting here, we can do this and this, and why I'm this is why I'm starting here. And this is why I'm not treating. Another way I would do it in terms of a differential diagnosis is I tell them, look, I'm not going to, I can't treat seven things at once either because we're not going to know what's helping and that all these meds together may make you worse. You have to explain to them. I like, otherwise they say, well, if it could be A, B, or C, why don't you just treat for A, B, or C? And then they go down the other the rabbit hole. So if you, the more time, like you said, unfortunately, you can't always spend the time with the patient anymore that you would like to, but if you can kind of quickly, concise, explain to them what you're doing, why you're doing it, and what the next step or two are, then you're on the same page. And once you're on the same page, they're going to more likely do the treatment and more likely them to get better. And I like your approach where you use standard antibiotic protocols, but then you also include supplements, which there's evidence behind it, meaning there's studies that have been done that show that these things help. And you include nutritional things, hormone treatments, etc. Studies back it up. I mean, and I see both patients who are traditional and holistic. I, I've learned now, I ask them, what is your approach? I have patients come in and say, I will never touch an antibiotic again unless I have to. And I explain to them the plus and minuses of that. And again, I've always, my goal of my patients is making sure we're on the same page initially. I don't want to waste the patient's time. I don't want to waste my time. And it the quicker you guys understand where you're going and what the next step or two are, again, the better their care is going to be. Totally agree with you. Um, any closing thoughts on Lyme disease or anything you want people to know about that or uh, your practice? Um, I mean, the main things are, in terms of Lyme disease, first of all, don't believe the hype. It's an, it's improving now. It's in all 50 states. If your doctor tells you that it's not in your state, I know um, doctors in California and down south and Texas and stuff are saying that it doesn't exist. It's not true. Two, again, in this case, you have to be vigilant about your diagnosis because you're going to get pushback depending on your talk to. And like I mentioned before, make sure that you know what your doctor's perspective on this is. It's very one of the few conditions where it happens that way, but understand what the perspective is and what you're looking for. And if it doesn't fit, then you may have to travel at least initially to see that doctor. I have patients come to me from Canada. I have patients that come to me from three, four hours away because they can't find somebody who, who does what, what they need. So it's not, you may not be able to go next door. The good thing is now is with technology, I do it. And I'm sure other doctors do it. At the first, second time you're seen, you can do a lot through video visits instead of doing it online, depending on the galley, it's a whole again, another issue. But you may have to drive or take a plane ride to get an official diagnosis. But the best part of that is you'll get feeling better because you're going to see a doctor who knows what to do with you. Uh, and I know people are going to ask this question. Can you like, because you're in Manhattan, can you treat someone from all 50 states or only specific or Canada? The, it, it's a moving target. The simple answer is I, they have to be seen in the office at least one time in New York in the treating doctor's office. Um, beyond that, I, you can usually treat in any state first for up to it depends usually the simple answer is up to six months and then you have to be seen in the office every six months and but, okay what if what if they're from canada canada that's a move that's even more common the simple answer is it's usually the same problem usually something like this they're usually seen every six months and you can do video visits or phone visits beyond that depending what's going on and and so you also do i'm assuming like telemedicine i do a lot of telemedicine for my patients who have again because they travel a lot and a lot of stuff is just discussing lab work and supplements or prescriptions a lot of times i can, it could be done 
done easily over the over the phone or the computer. And what are some ways that people can get in touch with you? Best way is to go to the website, doctor spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R, and my last name, Paulvin, P-A-U-L-V-I-N.com. My number's there. You can chat with me on the chat box. You can directly email me with questions. Um, that's probably the simple way. And also the other way is I'm uh, Instagram junkie now. And, uh, my wife, who's also a doctor, has got me hooked on it. So I put a lot of articles and tips on there. That's just Dr. Paulvin. Um, if anybody's on Instagram, um, and I put a lot of pertinent, it's not just pictures of me going to the gym. It's actually, I put a lot of articles and links to stuff that are pertinent to a lot of patients with chronic illness, including Lyme. Fantastic. So um, we'll include all of um, your social media contacts and ways to get in touch with you in the podcast uh, show notes. So Dr. Paulvin, thank you very much for sharing your information with us today. Thanks, Chris. It was a great time. Have a good day. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.